0: Hey, Nick, we have some exciting news to announce regarding um, our friends over at the OBG Project.
1: The OBG Project folks have now put all of OBG First within the OBG Resident Core. So you get OBG First for your entire OBGYN residency. How incredible is that, Faye?
0: Yeah, that sounds really great. And just to remind you guys, the resident core over at the OBG project is completely free. All you have to do is sign up and prove that you're a resident. And then you'll get not only OBG first, but also the OBG L&D ebook, as well as excellent curricula, as you know, as well as self-test quizzes and things like that for your studying.
1: Yeah, that's over a $198 per year value. So if you are interested in getting this free educational resource, head over to our website, CreeUgsOverCoffee.com. Check out the sidebar. Get signed up for the OBG Resident Core, And by extension, OBG First, the OBG L&D eBook, all of this awesome stuff, absolutely free, four years of residency. Hi guys, welcome back. This is Nick,
0: this is Faye, and this is Criads Over over
1: Coffee. coffee. Um, All right, so Faye, last week on the podcast we covered the CHIPS trial, um, but this week we're going to just take a slight turn and now cover the newer and theoretically improved CHAP trial. So what are our learning objectives?
0: Yeah, so first of all, I think we got to apologize for the uh, sound of our voice because I'm getting over COVID and you are currently wearing a mask hoping to not catch COVID.
1: (laughs) It's, yeah, one of these kind of crazy weeks in the pandemic, I think, but... We'll we'll get through it, and hopefully the audio quality doesn't suffer too badly.
0: (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Uh, So back to those learning objectives, Nick. So today we're going to review the CHAMP trial and why we think this is uh, one of the ones that you should know as an OBGYN resident. Um, We're going to understand why we do what we do, or in this case, what changes are coming to our practice potentially. And then finally, we'll review some of how we're practicing now and some remaining questions potentially for future studies. You know, I think like all the studies that we've looked at, Nick, there's like a cutesy name, right? The CHAP trial, which stands for chronic hypertension and pregnancy. But tell us a little background. What was the actual title?
1: Yeah, so this one um, did not really have a catchy title for the formal publication title. It was just called Treatment for Mild Chronic Hypertension During Pregnancy, and this was published um, just this year in May 2022 in the New England Journal of Medicine, so this is really hot off the press. Yeah. The group that published it was called the CHAP Consortium. So it was a group of institutions in the United States, and the protocol for the study was approved by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, or the NHLBI. The recruiting ultimately took place um, where there were 61 institutions in the U.S. that ultimately contributed patients to this study. We talked a bit last week about why this study was done, or previewed it, but Remember that after the CHIPS trial, there were still some outstanding questions that we had. First is that in the wake of CHIPS, there was a lot of renewed interest in the concern about antihypertensives and growth restriction. And some smaller trials that happened after CHIPS continued to substantiate that association, but CHIPS itself didn't. And then a large meta-analysis that was referenced in the CHAP study background as well as in the SMFM statement that we'll get into at the end of the podcast. Again, that big meta-analysis actually didn't find any association between small for gestational age infants and chronic hypertension treatment. The second thing that CHIPS left us with questions about was that they had essentially lumped together gestational hypertension and chronic hypertension. And so CHAP becomes more of a restricted trial, really focusing on true chronic hypertension. And you'll see that when we get into the methods. And then finally, while CHIPS demonstrated looser control of hypertension didn't result in major outcome differences, there were some of those non-significant differences in rates of severe blood pressures and with lab abnormalities that had us scratching our heads and thinking, well, maybe tighter control is better. So ultimately with all of those things taken together, CHAP really aims to more narrowly answer the question of whether tight versus looser control of chronic hypertension would result in fewer adverse pregnancy outcomes. And so probably very similarly to what we talked about last week, Faye, the research question ultimately was, will a blood pressure goal of under 140 over 90 versus 160 over 105 is the goal in the control arm, results in a lower incidence of adverse maternal and perinatal outcomes in patients with chronic hypertension in pregnancy. So, having that as our background, so maybe kind of a redux of what we had talked about last week, let's talk about the methods and how this really differed from chips.
0: Yeah. So in terms of the methods, in terms of who participated and when, the patients that were eligible for this study were pregnant patients with known or new chronic hypertension uh, diagnosed in pregnancy and a singleton pregnancy prior to 23 weeks. And um, this, again, is a little bit more narrow, right? Because CHIPS, they recruited all the way up to 33 weeks and six days. Now, new chronic hypertension was diagnosed based off of the criteria of a blood pressure of 140 over 90 on two occasions at least four hours apart prior to 20 weeks of gestation without prior diagnosis. And you'll notice here that this definition is much closer to the definition that we have from ACOG as well. Pre-existing chronic hypertension was defined by documented elevations in blood pressure and previous or current antihypertensive therapy, including lifestyle modifications alone. And pregnancy dating also needed to be confirmed according to ACOG criteria with ultrasound performed before randomization. Those that were excluded were those that had severe hypertension or blood pressure requiring more than one antihypertensive treatment, secondary cause of hypertension, so for example, renal artery stenosis, those with multiple gestation. Also, they said a pre-specified high-risk illness or complication that may warrant treatment at a lower blood pressure level. So for example, if a patient had severe cardiac or renal disease, and, you know, their physician wanted them to be at less than 130 over 80, for example. Other exclusion criteria included OB conditions that increased fetal risk and contraindications to the first-line antihypertensive drugs used in pregnancy. In terms of how the study was done, so blood pressure was measured with an automated cuff, which was same across all the sites, to screening uh, enrollment and to guide medication adjustments with research staff performing measurements by a specified protocol. Um, the patients were then randomized to two groups. One was tight control group, So the goal was to have their blood pressure be less than 140 over 90. Um, the second group they could be randomized to is less tight control. So this would be someone whose goal with blood pressure was going to be less than 160 over 105 if there was ongoing therapy, um, that medication was stopped in the less tight group unless severe blood pressures developed. And if a severe blood pressure was seen, then the target for acute treatment was to be less than 140 over 90. Um, In terms of the way that the study was done, this was a web-based variable block randomization program, and treatment was supplied as first-line with nifedipine XL or labetalol and prescribed by the trial investigators. Amlodipine and methyl dopa were also considered if it was preferred by the patient, and medications were prescribed to maximum recommended doses that were not associated with poor side effects before initiating a second medication. Control groups also received medication in a similar fashion, only if severe hypertension developed, and pill counts were performed to assess actual adherence, which was really cool. All right, Nick, so now that we've talked about who was in the study and how the study was done, um, what were they actually looking for? What were the outcomes?
1: So this was also a big difference versus CHIPS. You now, if you recall with CHIPS, the primary outcome was a neonatal composite index. So they really were looking at more of that question of was there a adverse effect on the infant? But with CHAP, the primary outcome was actually a composite of four things. Preeclampsia with severe features that could occur time during the study up to two weeks after birth a medically indicated preterm birth before 35 weeks because of maternal or fetal illness. So not for preterm labor or PPROM, but for something that was like medically indicated, like severe growth restriction with abnormal dopplers, or again, preeclampsia. Placental abruption was another one. And then if there was a fetal or neonatal death, With respect to preeclampsia with severe features, the ACOG criteria were used, but they did note that a blood pressure of 160 over 100 or greater in the absence of signs and symptoms of preeclampsia in the absence of proteinuria or absence of lab abnormalities was not considered sufficient to diagnose severe features. So again, kind of it's that challenge of diagnosing superimposed preeclampsia, right, They mm-hmm. of like, right. you know, is this a chronic hypertension exacerbation with blood pressures that are more high, or is it severe preeclampsia? And they basically said the blood pressures weren't enough to make that diagnosis.
0: Mm-hmm. The perpetual MFM question.
1: Correct. Correct. <laughs> Uh, The primary outcome was also assessed, not just for the whole trial, but in five pre-specified subgroups as well. Um, So first, based off of chronic hypertension treatment status at baseline, which was subdivided into a new diagnosis in that pregnancy, a patient who was diagnosed and already on medications, or a diagnosis and not receiving medications at baseline. Then the other subgroups were race and ethnicity groups, diabetes status, the gestational age at enrollments, either under or over 14 weeks, and then BMI, which was broken down into under 30, 30 to 40, and 40 or greater. Then they also had, in addition to sort of this primary outcome, again, of severe preeclampsia, preterm birth before 35 weeks, abruption, or fetal neonatal death, a primary safety outcome that was separate as well, which was poor fetal growth. And that was defined as a birth weight of less than the 10th centile for gestational age and infant sex, and they also assessed this at the 5th centile. Then, of course, just like all of the other trials we've talked about, they had a whole host of secondary outcomes that they looked at, including maternal death and various serious complications, exposure to severe hypertension, cesarean delivery, any preterm birth, and any serious neonatal complication or NICU stay. Um, impressively, these patients were followed out to six weeks postpartum, and then if any kind of outcomes occurred in the pregnancy, a blinded outcome adjudication committee reviewed patient charts, and they agreed on what primary or secondary outcomes occurred based on that chart review, and they were the ones who decided who had what in the end. They had 2,404 patients as their intended sample size, so you know 1,202 per group, and that was in order to detect a reduction in the primary outcome of 25% at a baseline incidence of that primary outcome as low as 10%. One of the things for, again, our statistics friends out there that's really interesting in this paper is they actually have a big discussion in the methods about how this sample size was agreed upon. Um, Initially, they actually wanted to have 4,700 patients for their total sample size but after the IRB review um, and a bit of statistical wizardry, they ended up settling upon this smaller size, which gave them less power to detect a big difference, but they felt that it was sufficient for the study question. So a kind of aside there, but interesting. And again, it's not something that you see in every randomized trial about such a neat discussion on how they came up with that sample size. So, all right, I'll digress on that. Our listeners want to know about results, Faye, so let's jump into that. What did we find out?
0: Yeah, so before we get there, we first have to talk about, you know, the baseline characteristics, who got recruited, right? Sure, sure, sure. Almost 30,000 patients underwent screening and 2,419 subsequently underwent randomization. And the final sample size for analysis was 2,408 with uh, 1,208 in the active treatment arm, so remember that's the tighter control, and then 1,200 in the control arm or the looser control as we previously described. 83 patients were lost to follow up for the complete study, um, 38 in the active group and then 45 in the control group. Overall, the baseline characteristics were pretty similar. So in terms of chronic hypertension status, about 56% in each arm had known chronic hypertension and were already on medication when they were randomized. 22% had known chronic hypertension but were not on medicine. And then 22% had newly diagnosed chronic hypertension. BMI for both was around 37.5, so certainly um, a higher BMI for both groups. Um, And diabetes was actually also high. It was about 15.8% in each arm. And also 44.7% in each arm was on some kind of aspirin therapy. In terms of medication, labetalol was the most common medication used, 61.7%, followed by nifedipine, 35.6%, and then only less than 3% received other types of medications the active treatment group had more patients taking medications. And that makes sense because you're trying to bring their blood pressures to a lower target. So that was almost 89% for the active group versus 24% for control. And then blood pressure also expected was predictably lower in the active treatment group after randomization. So the systolic um, in that group was less than 130 versus 132.6. And then the diastolic was 79 versus 81.5 in the uh, less tight control. Um, All right. So now that we've kind of talked about that, Nick, in terms of who they recruited, what was the actual primary outcome that they found?
1: Yeah. So remember, this primary outcome was a composite of severe preeclampsia, abruption, a medically indicated preterm birth less than or at 35 weeks or fetal or neonatal deaths. And that primary outcome occurred in 30.2% of the active or tight control group and 37% in the control or looser control group. That, um, once the appropriate statistical adjustments were made, came out to a risk ratio of 0.82, which was statistically significant to p less than 0.001. And if you kind of take a look at that and calculate out a number needed to treat to prevent a primary outcome event, that NNT was 14.7, or basically you needed to treat 15 patients to the tighter standard in order to prevent one primary outcome event. Not that many. Yeah, no, it's really impressive. Um, And we'll definitely get into that too as sort of part of the discussion and I think part of the importance of this trial. Um, If we look at the individual events alone, Preeclampsia with severe features ended up occurring in 23.3% of the active group versus 29.1% of the control group, and then preterm birth under 35 weeks that was medically indicated occurred in 12.2% of the active group versus 16.7% of the control group. Now, remember that they decided to also look at these primary outcomes by pre-specified subgroup as well, um, and the benefit seemed to be present across all of these subgroups with the exception of two. Um, the first was patients who had a new diagnosis of chronic hypertension in the pregnancy, so had never been diagnosed before, just at the outset of the study or the outset of pregnancy got diagnosed with it. And then if patients had a BMI at greater than or equal to 40, the treatment effect wasn't seen either. There's a really neat figure that comes out of that paper that we'll definitely post on the website where you can see sort of the confidence intervals of the effects. Um, But it was those two categories in particular where the treatment effects did not seem to line up. Now, there were also those other outcomes that we were thinking about. The first and most important, of course, was that primary safety outcome, the birth weight less than the 10th centile. Um, We actually saw birth weight less than the 10th centile in 11.2% of the active group versus 10.4% in the control group, and that was not statistically different. And for less than the 5th centile, it also is not statistically different. So coming away from CHAP, more aggressive hypertension treatment did not seem to impact rates of birth weight under the 10th or under the 5th centile as potentially feared. Then when we look at those secondary outcomes, there were no big substantial differences on the maternal side with the exception of two categories. One, the presence of severe range hypertension occurring in 36.1% of the active group and 44.2% of the control group. And then the development of any form of preeclampsia, 24.4% of the active group and 31.1% of the control group. So again, it seems like this more aggressive treatment, as one might predict, reduces the risk of preeclampsia. Then on the fetal side, there also weren't many substantial differences except for two. Preterm birth before 37 weeks of any cause was reduced in the active group, 27.5 versus 31.4. And then really interestingly, actually, birth weight under 2,500 grams is sort of a categorical variable. So not looking at centiles, but looking at just absolutes, occurred less in the active treatment group at a clip of 19.1 or 19.2% versus 23.1% in the control group. And that probably has something to do with the fact that preeclampsia developed less and there was less early birth in the active treatment group than the control group, Um, but really interesting to see. And then the final thing that I'll kind of come away from the statistical points here is that they actually did a post-hoc analysis looking at aspirin use to see if that modified the primary outcome, and it did not seem to demonstrate any difference in development of any primary or secondary outcome using aspirin.
0: My question was, how do they get away with chronic hypertensive patients not being on aspirin? (laughs) Because nobody gets away with not being on aspirin with high blood pressures here.
1: (laughs) Well, there are some skeptics out there, which we'll get into, but maybe that's for another day. Um, But Let's pause there. That's a lot of results that we just ran through, Faye. Um, And so what should our listeners take away and what are we doing now or what are we starting to do, I guess, since this was just published now three months ago?
0: Yeah. So the conclusions that the authors drew from this paper was that having a target blood pressure of 140 over 90 or lower was associated with better pregnancy outcomes than if the target was 160 over 105. And there were no significant differences in safety outcomes for the neonates, which was a big question that I think we all had was, are we trading off maternal outcomes for fetal outcomes? Now, the strength of this paper is that it's diverse. It's a nationwide cohort with lots and lots of patients. And more importantly, it strictly looks at chronic hypertension with early pregnancy enrollment, So we said, less than 23 weeks. And it uses modern definitions of preeclampsia and other hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. So it's very applicable to what we're doing now and to our patient population. And the overall results are consistent with the CHIPS trial because we do see a 50% reduction in the rate of severe range blood pressures and no difference in birth weight or growth restriction. Now, there are some weaknesses to this paper. So again, there was a high ratio of patients screened to patients enrolled. Over 29,000 were screened for a trial size of, you know, basically 2,400. And this probably reflects a lot of vigorous selection, which is a strength of the study, and importantly, the demographics of those screened versus selected did not significantly differ. Um, they do leave out a lot of higher-risk patients, though, so those people with cardiac and renal disease, secondary hypertension, etc. And additionally, in the pre-specified subgroup analyses, the treatment effect was not seen in patients with a BMI of equal to or greater than 40 or patients with newly diagnosed chronic hypertension in the pregnancy. And the study was not powered to assess these independently, um, but it may need to be seen if other strategies are better in these groups. Also, the definition of chronic hypertension really has changed. So the ACC and the American Heart Association in 2017, basically in the middle of recruiting for this study, lowered the target and defined chronic hypertension as a blood pressure of greater than 130 over 80, not 140 over 90. So we don't know if that might be better or worse as a target, if we actually were to target that number. And then finally, they only had this short-term follow-up, right? They only um, followed patients out to six weeks postpartum. So potentially longer-term follow-up could help inform if there are any benefits ultimately with maternal or neonatal risks um, beyond that immediate postpartum phase. All right. Nick. I know that you also wanted to cover some interesting things that this, this trial kind of uncovered. So what, what, is the, what are those interesting points?
1: Yeah, I think the two really were that, you know, number one was just to re-highlight again that number needed to treat of 14.7 or about 15 patients to reduce that primary outcome. Um, and again, we've talked about NNTs with some of the other trials that we've had on the show, Faye. Um, and 15 is really excellent. I think it's really excellent in light of the other safety data provided in this trial, at least the short-term safety data that seem to suggest that this doesn't affect you know, birth weight um, and doesn't seem to cause maternal harm at all. The other thing that I think is really interesting from this trial was that aspirin use was equal between each of these groups. Um, and again, post hoc analysis demonstrated it didn't seem to influence the primary outcome measure. So. If you're an aspirin skeptic out there, perhaps this lends some credence to your theory that aspirin may not be the silver bullet or the wonder drug that you think it is, or that many would think it is. Um, That really the control of hypertension may be the ticket rather than the aspirin itself. Um, But I also am not sure that I'd throw away aspirin based on this trial alone. Um, Given that really the point wasn't to evaluate aspirin, the point was Mm -hmm. to evaluate the hypertension control strategy. But I think another thing that just is an interesting point that got raised in this trial. The last bit that we'll leave you guys with is on the website we'll link out to the um, SMFM special statement on this trial. Um, which goes through a lot of the points and goes into a little bit more detail than we did on some of the specifics of the trial. But the general message is that SMFM and ACOG are overall supportive of moving towards a target blood pressure goal of less than 140 over 90 in patients with chronic hypertension based on this trial, though acknowledging these limitations that we've just talked through. All right. Well, I think that does it for today. So once again, this is Nick. This is Faye. And this has been Criogs Over Coffee.
0: So guys, if you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, go ahead and go into your favorite podcatcher and give us a five-star rating and review.
1: You can find us online on Twitter at Over Coffee one on Instagram and Facebook at Over Coffee. or if you love the show, support us, patreon.com slash Coffee. Send us some love and we'll send you some swag.
0: You can find show notes for this show and all of our other episodes on our website at www.criagsrivercoffee.com.
1: If you have a question for us, a correction to this or any of our prior episodes, or just want to say hi, email us, criagsrivercoffee at gmail.com.